This is Primal Screen, a weekly radio show airing Monday evenings on Triple R. Primal Screen is about movies, from the ones on the big screen to the ones you stream. Hope you enjoy the podcast version and feel free to get in touch via the Primal Screen Facebook page or the Triple R website. Welcome to Primal Screen, a Triple R film criticism show and podcast. I am your host, Paul Anthony Nelson, and joining me in the virtual studio are Sally Christie. Hello, Paul. And Flick Ford. Hello, hello. How are we all doing? Very well. Excellent. Yes, I'm good. I'm good. You're good. <laughs> Sorry, you're I, good. Get, I kept getting distracted. I can see Carl again. He's distracting me. <laughs> We're oh, in a virtual studio, so we have a... Uh, <laughs> We're broadcasting from the the uh, netherworld of Zoom. Uh, Carl is killer. Carl Chapman has uh, got a hat and a ponytail tonight. He's looking very street. Um, very, on... public, very public holiday. Yeah. Yes. Relaxed. <laughs> we will be paying tribute to the city in which we live and love, one so fundamental to the lifeblood of Triple R, by looking back at three more classic films made in Melbourne. And they're all films which have recently celebrated or are currently celebrating their 40th anniversaries. We'll start with everybody's favourite comatose, psychokinetic, jealous boy in Richard Franklin's 1978 horror film, Patrick. Then we'll hit the highways with George Miller's legendary 1979 action classic, Mad Max. And then with footy returning this week, we're heading down to Victoria Park for Bruce Beresford's 1980 on and off field sports drama. The club. Also, as you listen to us talking nonsense about these films, please feel free to hit us up on our social media channels and leave a comment. We're on Facebook at, at Primal Screen Show, on Instagram at Primal underscore, uh, Primal underscore Screen underscore Show, and on Twitter at Primal underscore Screen. Before we jump into this week's movie news, I think I speak for all of us here at Primal Screen when I say we wholeheartedly support the Black Lives Matter protests of the last week and are committed in our own lives to continued personal learning and development to seek lasting change to the systemic racism of an Australian society which is founded upon and built around white privilege. To those black identifying and people of colour out there, we support you and we are listening. Lovely words, uh, Paul. Thank you. Thank you. Um, and just also, too, as we are looking at films made in this town we've called Melbourne, it is important to acknowledge that we are living and broadcasting on the land of the Kulin Nation, that sovereignty has never been ceded, and this is and always will be Aboriginal land. And now it's time for the Primal Screen News Bulletin of the Week. As the world and its economy slowly emerge, blinking, in some cases like mine, reluctant from social <laughs> restrictions put in place uh, to limit the spread of the coronavirus, cinema lovers, i.e. our audience, will be wanting to know when they can begin to return to cinemas. Well, it's official that certain Victorian cinemas, such as Carlton's Cinema Nova, Hawthorne's Lido Cinemas and Elston Wick's Classic Cinemas, will be reopening to the public on Monday, June 22nd 
albeit with a reduced amount of sessions and seats. With physical distancing applied to allocated seating, no more than two people can sit side by side, and sanitary measures such as hand sanitizers in foyers and more time allotted to cleaning cinemas in between sessions, hence less sessions, um, all applied by the law. The uh, Palace, Village and Hoyt cinema chains will reopen on July 2nd with similar restrictions in place. Now, given these restrictions on audience members and session times and the time it takes to organise film festivals, many major film festivals are going ahead online, with two major film festivals doing just that this week. The Sydney Film Festival will be running in a reduced capacity online from this Wednesday, June the 10th to June 21st, screening programs of Australian-made shorts and documentary features, a program of new feature films from European female directors, and selections from the New South Wales Screenability Short Film Program devoted to short stories made by filmmakers with disability. One particular highlight, I think you'll agree, Sally, uh, I don't know if Flick's seen it yet, this is now finally her chance, but one particular highlight of the Australian documentary program is Isabel Peppard and Josie Hess's documentary Morgana. Oh, about- yes, I, ju- I just re-watched it the other night, actually. It's such a treat, so... It's really exciting that people can, you know, get to see Morgana. I definitely agree, Paul. I had, I actually had tickets to that doco for MIF, and I um had to, had, I couldn't go. <laughs> I was well, devastated. You can watch it now, Flick. <laughs> you yes, can. I will you, be. you can grab a ticket to uh to SFF. Um, Morgana is, of course, about a documentary about the Australian housewife turned porn star, Morgana Muses Cody. Uh, it made our uh, top, uh, many of our top five festival picks of last year. Um, so uh, get on to that. It, it and many other features are available to rent for $14 each during the uh, Sydney Film Festival period. Shorts are $5 each, and you can get a pass to the entire festival for $199. Just head to Sydney Film Festival's website at sff.com.au. As well as SFF, Melbourne's leading short film festival, the SKFF, the St Kilda Film Festival, launches it uh, this week on Friday, June 12, and will be running until June 20th. As ever, St Kilda will be playing their, their selection of Australia's 100 best shorts in assorted programming strands, from singular voices and social change to moving portraits and world perspectives to tales of mystery and imagination as well as spotlights on the early shorts of Jane Campion and Indigenous actor and activist Gary Foley's work with director Philip Noyce, which will begin with a special live introduction from Foley. As well as those two programs, two short films I can recommend from the program are Audio Guide by Chris Eleanor and Fishhead by Grace Tan. Films and sessions will be available when the St Kilda Film Festival kicks off on Friday. And finally, Melbourne is home to an innovative film experiment, which opened over the weekend and is streaming again this week. In the Shadow It Waits is a horror film performed live, being made as you watch it, with actors performing from their own homes in different states across Australia. Created and directed by Michael Beats, it is a tale of four 20-something co-workers who, bored with their day jobs and being cooped up in isolation, decide to play a silly online game and unwittingly prove the existence of an urban legend. And while they may not be able to get out, that doesn't mean something else can't get in. (laughs) It it runs for approximately 40 minutes and is streaming at 8.30pm on Thursday the 11th, Friday the 12th and Saturday the 13th of June. Tickets are $10 per person or $20 for a household. Just head to their website, which is billybillybilly.net, that's B-I-L-L-Y, 
three times, billybillybilly.net, and follow the links or head to their Facebook page. Just search for In the Shadow It Waits and follow the links. Now, join us in the living room, please, as we hit play on our first film of the evening. He said someone would try to kill him last night, and she did. Only he stopped her. He Patrick. stopped her? Patrick. The one that's been in a coma for two years? Three years. Patrick, from 1978, was the third feature film directed by Richard Franklin. Three years after murdering his parents, Patrick, Robert Thompson, lies in a coma at the Roger Clinic, a private hospital in Melbourne. Following a job interview with the head of the hospital, Matron Cassidy, played by Julia Blake, Kathy Jacquard, played by Susan Penhelligan, is taken on as Patrick's new nurse. The hospital's, new, the hospital's owner, Dr. Roger, Sir Robert Helpman, explains Patrick's condition to Kathy and says he is being kept alive to explore the nature of life and death. But another patient, Captain Fraser, claims that Patrick flies in and out of the window at night <laughs> because the truth is Patrick has psychokinetic powers and the ability to travel out of his body to wreak havoc. Sally. Without involuntarily spitting in my face, (laughs) why was this this your pick for tonight? I'm really fond of Patrick. Um, I... (sighs) I really like Patrick for the reason that it is completely, the whole concept of it is completely batshit crazy. There is a guy that's in a coma. His eyes are wide open as well. They have to, you know, um, put moisture on them. They really specify that. So, and he creates all these horrors throughout the film. And it sounds so completely absurd, but I think it works really well. Like, I just think it's... um, this insane concept, but they just happen to pull it off. And I love Everett D. Roach, who wrote the um, screenplay. He, he had, uh, I think, written Long Weekend just not long before this, which is another one of my favourite Australian mm-hmm. horror films. Um, I love his writing and it's this kind of really, yeah, this kind of crazy stuff that shouldn't happen, but it does. And um, this movie I think is really unsettling. And, yeah, I just I think that in the 70s and 60s, not just with Australian cinema but with cinema in general, um, we had a lot of these crazy concepts where they got through, where it's like <laughs> you couldn't make a movie like this now. Well, I don't think. I don't think that there's that kind of um, not experiment. They're not experimental but these ideas that are so out there and people going yeah sure we'll do that we'll put that to screen so and since you're such a big fan did you see the remake that they did um (laughs) you don't like it I don't like the remake. (laughs) (laughs) I was curious to know I haven't seen it I just was like I'll ask Sal first before you don't you don't need to you don't need to good to know yeah because it did get remade I think in 2014 Mm, but yeah Yeah, it's, no, you don't. No, you don't no. need to see um, the remake of Patrick. <laughs> um, but yeah, I really, I love this. I think it's fun. I think it's a, a fun little end of. I think when we're having our exploitation films, that it was kind of you know one of my favourite ones. Oh, absolutely! It's um, I loved all the. I don't know. I love that the you've got this this kind of um, 
creepy private hospital where all this weird stuff's happening and like really great um and quite grim characters with um I've got her name the woman who Matron Cassidy and the, <laughs> that, the jo- that job interview it's so good isn't it <laughs> she's so completely bad. unrattled by it it's like no yeah. I'm fine with it yeah I love them um, I loved that scene I think that's one of the strongest scenes one I mean it's got a lot of really excellent scenes but I thought that was really excellent mainly because yeah. um one of the takeaways I had from this is that it's a really quite progressive representation in some ways of female sexuality and I thought I thought the same thing really watching that there were yeah. a lot of themes that came through on because it has been quite a few years since I've watched it but I felt that there was a lot of um stuff looking I guess at you know second wave feminism and Absolutely. you know yeah. that I hadn't noticed on the first watch of this yeah and and a lot of um female friendship within it that was very believable and, mm. and quite touching and um I loved the scene where Machen Cassidy is interviewing Kathy for the for the job and um she keeps on talking about the fact that Kathy is separated from her husband and there's um the oh, I forgot the the head doctor comes in at one Dr. point Dr. Roger that's right Dr. Roger and she's just like um oh um she's she's got all this experience but she's got domestic instability <laughs> and, it's kind of, and it's like yeah that's fine when could she start but the scene the scene totally plays a satire and the film is um it's a kind of a nice balance between that of it's got you know obviously it's thrilling and it's got all these supernatural stuff going on but it's also like exploring that um you know, what would have been kind of the aftermath of or the kind of, um, yeah, aftermath of the 60s um, sexual revolution and stuff like mm-hmm. that. So I kind of liked that Kathy was um, this independent woman going uh, on lots of little dates and things and going to, you know, top yeah. being She's and, got a, know, a couple kind of guys in tow. Yeah. And she's kind of just calm and collected throughout the whole film. Like there's all she this insane is. stuff and Patrick's telling her to get stuff through a typewriter <laughs> and... <Yeah>. Um, <laughs> She's really calm about it. She's, she's um, a good, yeah, she's a good balance of like assertive but curious about it. Like, oh, yeah. this is odd. And it's like, that's really bloody odd. Why are you not scared? <laughs> <laughs> but um, I also love that she was there having like a, a bedtime read and she's got this ciggy in a bowl. Yeah. <laughs> so, so also a bit of a fire hazard. It's like so close <laughs> to her doona. But um, no, I liked this film a lot. And I, I wasn't sure whether I was going to, but I got kind of drawn into it. I was actually assembling Ikea furniture at the time. <laughs> <laughs> and I just stopped what I was doing because I was just so I got really into it. Um, it's sad to know that the American remake, we're talking about this off air. Uh, I was talking about this off air with Paul about the fact the American remake was dubbed it with American voices. Well, the American release. American release, yeah, sorry, yeah, yeah. not remake. Um, What's that? Yeah. 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 And you, uh, the, tra- the American dub trailer is on YouTube. Mm. Isn't there an Italian sequel to this as yeah. well? Yeah. Patrick Viva Ancora. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but I can see why it kind of captured the attention of like Tarantino. Apparently, used it as inspiration for um, Uma Thurman's coma scene in Kill Bill, and yeah, like I can see why it holds its own. Like it's kind of stayed there in the cultural imaginary. It's um, a lot of fun. I did like the whole little the facts around the how they actually made the film, how they had to put special drops into his eyes to stop them from blinking. And um, that's the thing that I think with this film is his performance is really fucking good. Yeah, <laughs> it's great, and he's so distinctive. Yeah, like yeah. it's such a good performance. Mm. You know, I, I don't think that's an easy thing to kind of do, even though it looks it. <laughs> yeah, you see, it's light on your back for the whole film, yeah. but no, he's yeah, he but... makes such an impression. Um, of course, too, that uh, so this was Richard Franklin's third film. His first two films were sex comedies, but I and, can see that. 
but the thing is, that's not at all what he was interested in making. Oh, he right. was because he was a, a literal disciple of Hitchcock. And when I say literal, he um, he was um, uh, he attended USC. He was a, the first one of the first because when USC started their film courses in the 60s, Richard uh, Franklin was obviously like one of the first, if not the first Australian to attend USC doing uh, film school. He was a classmate of John Carpenter and various other oh, people. Wow. And he actually struck up, he reached out to Hitchcock as a young man and invited Hitchcock to USC to speak. And at that time, because film schools were relatively new, that wasn't really done. They didn't have Q&As with famous filmmakers. And Richard Franklin getting Hitchcock in was one of the first people to do that. And then after that, once USC realised how accessible these filmmakers were, they started bringing them all in. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's, you know, the Hitchcock, the Hitchcockian scenes throughout this um, flourishes at times throughout this film are no accident. Um, he was an absolute devotee in that sort of almost as much as Brian De Palma, mm. just with a lot less money. Um, <laughs> and so, you know, films like this and his next film, Road Games, and of course he wound up being hired to direct Psycho 2 um, because he was, you know, if it's like De Palma can't do it, you hire Richard yeah. Franklin. yep. Um, having said that, I, I love, I think, yeah, this film is so interesting because it's basically a relationship quadrangle, um, where one of the parties just happens to be a jealous comatose psychokinetic maniac. <laughs> but other than that, no, it's just that, like, that old thing, that old cause complication. <laughs> Very it's, relatable. We've all been there. <laughs> yeah. And that sort of, you know, like, <laughs> we've all been there, <laughs> that, that, you know, sort of, uh, kind of not red herring, but kind of like, you know, Patrick seems to be a victim for a while and we sort of think, oh, are they taking advantage of Patrick? And it turns out Patrick's got a lot of anger in him. And um, But, yeah, this this sort of um, relationship quadrangle is kind of the, the heart of the film, really. And I think, the fi- I think the film is a bit slow. Like, I think it is a bit thin on story <laughs> to justify the near two-hour running time. Like, it's very <laughs> I think when um, Everett DeRoach first got the script, it was something like 250 pages long. Good Lord. Yeah. Like also, it was that's with, like, one character not insane. saying anything. <laughs> There's it only, got, like, five characters in this movie. It got what? really cut down. And I, I totally agree, Paul. It's it's too long for what it, it doesn't need mm. to be nearly a two-hour runtime for this film. Um, but, yeah, it was insanely long when they first got the script. Wow. Because, yeah, because it, if there's one thing that hurts this movie, it's a, it seems like Franklin really hasn't got pacing down yet. No. There's just no, it's, yeah. it's pacing is really uneven. Yep. But, I but, actually uh, kind of didn't mind. I think because th- the, the irregular pacing actually <laughs> kind of caught me in because usually you'd be like, oh, I'm about to be scared or this is about to happen, whereas this they'd be like, oh, they're going to another party or like, I don't know. <laughs> where you think the climax of this film is going to be it's not and then it turns out that there's something else that's happening yeah yeah you're totally right the pacing is all over the place <laughs> it's really yeah. odd yeah. but other than that it is but it's it is really engrossing though like you end up getting into it and and it's 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 definitely there are a few moments that make it assuredly memorable um Robert Helpman is just so weird in this film. Like, there's just something really off kilter about him. Um, and the fact that you know he's obviously you know this this amazing legendary ballet dancer, mm. and then he's in this role in this movie is just really really bizarre. Um, as well as every time Rod Mullinar opens his mouth, and it's like, oh, of course, there's the voiceover guy to a million ads <laughs> um, in in an elevator. I did wonder about one bit though. I was I was I was debating whether I was going to say this on air, but I'm going to go there. So okay, so 
Mulliner's character is trapped by Patrick in an elevator shaft. Yes. In an elevator uh, car for what seems to be at least a couple of days. Mm-hmm. At one point, he's in the elevator and he's like all it's like stanked up with sweat and everything, and and there's and he throws and, and like you know he's brought flowers and he's thrown them on the ground. And the camera pans at one point. He's been in the lift for a while, and it pans from him to the flowers on the ground to a suspicious brown smear. It's a pile of shit. It is right. <laughs> yeah, it's got to be because when I was reading, I thought the same thing. I was like, "That's a pile of shit on the floor." It is. It's got to be. What that, else? Thank you. Yeah. Because yeah, because like there's not that much soil in in a, like a flowers from a thing. He's no, totally no, it's a pile of shit. Look, it's been a couple of days. We all understand. <laughs> um, but yeah, I just and and like obviously uh, filmed all around and very recognizable. I mean, the Roger Clinic is a location on Turak Road, Turak hmm. Road West. Uh, which yes. I've driven a, driven past hundreds of times, um, and yeah, it's it's um, the hospital is the Alfred, like it's it's kind of crazy, but but yeah, this is this oh, is wait, one of the I've been in that hospital. Yeah, I mean <laughs> it's obvious. Patrick, <laughs> I'm um, sure. I didn't realize it, that it, it's been majorly renovated since they did that. But yeah. um, do not <laughs> do not recognize that. <laughs> they don't have those snazzy orange seats anymore, but. <laughs> But yeah, I I, I do. Uh, there is there is something magnetic about this film. There is something yeah. twisted and weird. And I think Franklin's direction has just evolved enough to kind of you know to to draw you in and go and, and give it a bit of heft and atmosphere that other filmmakers might not have mind. And of course, it's inspired by the likes of Carrie and, and mm-hmm. films that were sort of hits around that time. It's it's very memorable. This Patrick, I feel like it's just one of those films that you you don't forget seeing. It's that kind of the image of him kind of really gets seared in your brain. If you've seen Patrick, you're always going to remember it. I feel. Yeah. Mm. Agreed. Um, good, good work, Robert Thompson. Whatever happened to him? Um, Patrick is now available to stream via Tubi. You're listening to Primal Screen on Triple R. Triple R on FM, digital, online, via the app. You're listening to Primal Screen on Triple R with Sally Christie, Flick Ford, and myself, Paul Anthony Nelson. Now pour yourself something nice and join us for our second film of the evening. They say people don't believe in heroes anymore. Well, damn them! You and me, Max. We're gonna give them back to heroes. Do you really expect me to go for that crap? You gotta admit I sound good there for a minute. Five feet. Mad Max from 1979 was the debut feature film directed by George Miller. In a dystopian Australia of the near future, Max Rokotansky, Mel Gibson, is a highway patrolman cruising the squalid back roads that have become the breeding ground of criminals forging for gasoline and scraps. After grisly events at the hands of a motorcycle gang led by the toe cutter, Hugh Keys Byrne, escalate to a tragic degree, Max sets out across the barren wasteland in search of revenge. Flick, are you a rocker, a roller, an out-of-controller laying down a rubber road to freedom? Does the toe cutter see a man? <laughs> yes. Yes, I am. 
Oh, look, I was, like, raised on Mad Max. This is something where I don't even think I can be a sort of critic for this because it's just I I love everything about uh, the Mad Max universe. Um, there's just something so thrilling about watching this really wild sort of post-apocalyptic world. And for the first one especially, it's so closely... Um, set in like close to present day and like of course as the films go on they get further and further away from that but I was just remember being so drawn into like the leather jackets and the punk aesthetic and it's kind of um it's just such a I don't know especially as a kid watching like these really strong there's a few like really strong female characters in it and just like a surprising amount of diversity as well in the film and there was just so much going on and it was so unexpected. And, um, yeah, I re-watching it, though, I did think I forgot how violent it was and it was like, wow, I can't believe I watched this as a child. <laughs> it's kind of um, maybe, yeah, maybe you should, maybe I should be a bit older. But, um, no, I really enjoyed being like revisiting this because um, this is probably the first one is the film I've seen the least out of Yeah, the- I, I would agree that it's the yeah. one that I'm the least familiar with as well. Is really? Yeah. Yep. Yeah, I mainly, I this is a controversial um, position, but I actually bloody loved Beyond Thunderdome. That oh, was, I was no. just so into Tina Turner. Oh, <laughs> I mean, no. as a kid. Yeah, okay. Since okay, then, I get it. I have, yeah, since then, like. I had um, Thunderdome Road, so much. Yeah, number, <laughs> number two of Road Warrior and um, Fury Road are like. I just adore like I just and I I can't even talk about them in an academic sense I just love them so much I mean I had I do have the idea of one day writing a book about um Max's um gradual loss of language through all four films and talking about how he becomes steadily less vocal and he's just kind of reduced to grunts by by Fury interesting isn't it I really think that that whole thing that side of it is so interesting and and Mm. as as how like voice is so often used to demarcate sort of authority and space and he he retreats further and further away and he's he's a grieving especially for the the three films that follow he's a grieving um father and and husband and it it kind of he doesn't repair from it I do love the fact Mm. I just love Max as a character like he he often like there's a whole um the trope throughout all four films of him firing a gun and it not working and he's a (laughs) bit of a you know, mess. And um, I love, I like that about it. These are imperfect characters. And I think the relationship between he and his wife is very believable. And um, yeah, I just really loved it. Um, There was something also about how this was made. And like um, Paul and and I had a bit of a chat off air before about little bits that we were going to talk about tonight. So um, I was sort of saying that, um, yeah, the cost of um, how much was it to to make again, Paul? Three hundred and fifty thousand yeah. Australian dollars. Yeah. And wow. how much did it make again in the box? Well, it made. Well, this is the thing. Uh, some sources have it making as much as one hundred million dollars worldwide. Wow. Um, yeah. At one point, it was the it held the Guinness World Record for the most profitable film ever made. Oh, yeah, really? Wow. Yeah, at, one, at one point, yeah. And Miller is such an interesting director because he worked as a doctor to fund mm. this. And I know that at the end he'd completely run out of money, so he's just paying extras with slabs of beer. So it's just <laughs> I kind of love the, the fact that the making of the film is almost just as ragtag as the film itself. And revisiting it, I think the first one, there's a lot of issues with um, the pacing and it's not as... Um, not as well done as the others and I probably probably would be my least favorite out of the four but it was yeah it was just interesting hearing about like reading up about what inspired him and he was really um wanting to 
refer to this oil crisis of the 70s and thinking about, okay, that lasted for 10 days, but what if that was to last for 10 years? And that's kind of the starting point. And I think Miller's skill is really as a storyteller. And hmm. even like to the detail, he talks a lot about the the character of the cars. And I mean, I only, I'm learning how to drive now. And uh, so I don't, not a, don't know anything about cars really, but I remember watching it and that came across even as a child. I remember watching it and you got a sense of the characters, cars are extensions of them and their names as well are part of that. And I love um, his sense of storytelling and he really creates a lot of folklore in Mad Max and it's just wild and I, I just have, I love this, this whole um, franchise. Yeah, for me as well, Flick, this is the one that I feel that I know the least. I've, mm. I've, you know, seen it before as well, you know, watched it definitely when I was younger. But of all the Mad Max films, um, it's the one I'm least familiar with. And I was really struck by how much Max speaks in this film. Um, when Which I was re- still isn't that much. No, but it, it's so much, <laughs> substantially more than... Um, He's speaking than in sentences. <laughs> yes, yeah. he is. He's speaking in full sentences. He's speaking his words. Um <laughs> But, but of all the films that we're looking at tonight, this is the one that felt most Melbourne to me. Um, oh. Yeah, yeah. And it's because of the roads that they're well, most, I guess, like home to me. It's because I think oh, the course. roads that they're driving on look like the roads that I drove on when I was a kid, like uh, near, you know, Backers Marsh growing up there. I don't know. I don't think anything was filmed around there, but it has that very similar feel before everything kind of got developed going into, I guess, you know, some remelt and those kind of ways where it's, it's that kind of just paddocks everywhere. I spent time growing up around Sunbury and I swear yeah. to God there's scenes in this film I think that there are too. filmed yeah. like you in the outskirts of Sunbury. Sunbury? Yeah, yeah. yeah. I think, around yeah. there. I think there is too. And that's well, even from... When you know, still mm. driving there, and the because my you know, uh, my family used to live out there until recently, and yeah, even driving in the mm. 2000s, places that look like then, so yeah, yeah, I, I definitely ha- thought that as well. Like Diggers Rest, Sunbury, there was so this, this was the one that kind of felt most like you know, not Melbourne CBD, but Melbourne to me from all of these films that we're looking at tonight. I love that, like, it's po- post apocalyptic as well. You're like, oh, yeah, this feels about right. Melbourne this feels now. like <laughs> Melbourne in the 80s. <laughs> 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 yeah, it's it, I I love this film. Um it's very tough to me. I think I think the Mad Max film franchise are three masterpieces and a munted stepchild. Um <laughs> and uh from my reaction to Flick's comment before, I think you can all guess which which I believe is the munted stepchild. Um we'll let's just say it's the one that, <laughs> that George Miller quit after Byron Kennedy passed away and it got so destroyed he couldn't complete the film and handed it over to some other guy who we've not really seen as a director since and with good reason. Anyway, <laughs> I revere this film. I like I grew up in Mad Max 2, um, The Road Warrior. Yeah. But yep. came to this second um a few years later and I love the drive-in movie energy of it. I think mm. and coming back to it, it's so like it's kind of timeless. Like I think it's really, mm. it's got this beautiful primal classical structure. And because the, everything looks so unhinged, like the stunts are, everybody seems to be genuinely risking their lives at all times. Yes. I really yeah. got the sense that people are getting hurt. <laughs> well, one guy <laughs> actually, sure a motorcycle does clip a guy in the back of the head yes. at one point, And that's yeah. real. And that dude had to spend some time in hospital. Oh. Um, but there's also, there is a believability to Max's relationship with the, with his wife and with mm. his, with his kid who is only yeah. referred to as Sprog. Uh, <laughs> 
yeah. so Australian. Yeah. Bro, so Australian. Bro. And it's so, yeah, and I, and I think that but there's this sort of spare, very minimalist kind of energy to this. And, and also um, something that feeds through these films as well is it's interesting because, you know, this is, a fi- this is a film where the world, it's like 10 minutes after the world has begun to collapse. And mm. so all the police have gone berserk. Like they're, they're all either quitting or going mad. And it's like basically the only reason that they're in the force, the only ones that are still kept on is so they can get their thrills behind the wheel. It's like mm. they, the, the, the whole thing of enticing Max back to the force is giving him a V8. Mm. And it's this whole thing. It's like there's the, the line between the toe cutters gang and the criminals and the major, you know, the, the MFB is so thin. Yeah, very I love fine. that the police chief is literally shirtless and wearing these ridiculously tight leather pants as they're having a discussion about Max's career. Yeah, and right. Amazing. So good, isn't it? Yeah. And there's an increasing, that too, well, with the, with and this goes through Mad Max too as well, is this increasing almost queerness. Absolutely. With the the people in the wasteland as it goes on. Yep. And and real like um yeah, I mean that's such part of the aesthetic of it, especially mm. number two. You really get that brand brought out. And like, yeah, you see it in the in the other the following two films after that as well. Yeah, it's it's such a big part of it. And I think that music for Miller, like I think that's his representation of it. It's almost like subcultural style of music coming through. Mm. And that's played out because I think like the you see that with um I forgot the other name of the group of people, but they've got like a lot more like flowing fabrics and stuff like that. And you know, kind of obviously more a hippie sort of vibe to them so it's like I love that music becomes this like visually represented even though there's no none of that music playing on on yeah did Miller always intend to do Road Warrior after this or I feel like it was yeah. I feel like watching it, it feels like he had to have it to be continued. I would have mm. so. I think yeah, he, okay. I think he's such a storyteller that I feel like he would have mapped yes. that out. Yep. I can't imagine that it was. Mm. And also Mad Max really finishes, the first one finishes where you kind of think it starts. It start. Yeah, like yeah. it literally wrote where it starts there. So, yeah. yeah. And that's what surprised me as well, coming back to it even after all these times, mm. is how late in the movie he actually becomes ha- like, uh, inverted yeah. commas mad. mad absolutely it's in the last yeah it's in the minutes. last yeah it's yeah. the majority of the film i was yeah. i was surprised mm. about rewatching as well paul was just um you know how it's kind of regular max up until the end of the film <laughs> <laughs> it's a rev head max into rev mad head max. <laughs> so mad max is now streaming on stan and available to rent via itunes Triple R. You're listening to Primal Screen on Triple R with Flick Ford, Sally Christie, and myself, Paul Anthony Nelson. So grab the microwave popcorn, won't you, and join the members of your household for our final film for tonight. You read the play and started sprinting for the goal. Picked up a long, low pass from Wally Baker. Did a beautiful blind turn around Stan Jackson and slammed it through the centre. I'd go out in a limb. I'd go out in a limb and say it's the best first game that's ever been played on this ground. Thanks. No, I mean it. And I've seen every game this club's played since I was six. The Club from 1980 was the eighth feature film directed by Bruce Beresford, based upon the play by David Williamson. 
Set inside the Collingwood Football Club at a time when the VFL was starting to move into a more semi-professional sphere, the film begins with club president Ted Parker, Graham Kennedy, paying a king's ransom for a young, unproven Tasmanian recruit, Jeff Hayward, played by John Howard. No, not that John Howard, the other John Howard who's in sea change. Uh, without consulting their dedicated coach, Laurie Holden, played by Jack Thompson. As the team continue to struggle, Jeff continue, uh, starts not living up to his price tag and seeming to care even less. Laurie is infuriated as the club president and his cronies, club legend Jock, Frank Wilson, and business-minded administrator Jerry, Alan Castle, close in, each planning to backstab the other. Will any of these hotheads form an alliance that will see the pies climb the ladder again? Flick, is this film a line-breaking midfielder or should it be dragged and sent back to the reserves? <laughs> um, I've, I've actually seen this one a few times, so I was it was kind of familiar ground for me. But, no, I, I enjoy this. I I think there's a lot of heart to this film. It, it's, not, it's kind of nonsensical, but it's actually <laughs> underneath that is a pretty clever satire. I live really close to Vic Park. So, <laughs> I mean, the whole theme of tonight is obviously movies made in Melbourne and one of the great delights is when you're watching a film and you're seeing your neighbourhood on the screen. So um, I just love that Vic, the Vic Park, as it's imagined in this film, is... Um, just like there's got the the scene after the match where the entire stadium and grounds are like covered in this thick layer of tinnies and the rubbish <laughs> collectors are just like shoveling it into these bonfires in the stands. It's such a ridiculous film. Um, but also like I just loved the 80s aesthetics. You've got these footballers with these luscious long like 80s locks and um, tiny shorts and like this permanent lobster red sunburn that just every single character seems to be sporting. So I um I enjoyed it a lot. I think it's um it's a really clever little satire. And I think that, you know, for me, when we, if Sally, you were saying before that Mad Max for you was the most Melbourne. Um, I think something about the club is very Melbourne, I suppose, because um I'm an outsider and uh when I came to Melbourne, I feel like I didn't even I, you know, had got into football, but I wasn't I'd watched, you know, I'd watched the grand final every year, but it's really since moving to Melbourne that I've I've become a fan. And especially with AFLW as well starting up. Um, and so I think that for me it was really a pleasure in watching it and for it to be kind of interrogated in interesting ways. Like it's a very knowing comedy. And um just even having the the footage of the game as well and um uh, John Howard had actually, um, again, I always feel like we have to say the actor because it does sound like <laughs> we're talking Howard, about the yeah. old PM. The name's tainted. Yeah, it really is. Yep. Um, but, he, yeah, he trained up with the Pies in preparation for the role. Oh, wow, well. I didn't know that. Yeah, yeah, just I think also with one of the smaller local teams as well. Hmm. Um, and I, I think that it's a really it really communicates the kind of the drama of those scenes really well but also is uh, – is an interrogation of really toxic masculinity that that comes up in sport and it's very obvious in it and through the dialogue and um, the play by David, David Williams, Williamson is really tight. Like it's a really excellent um, interrogation of that space, which, mm. you know, is really um, has a bad track track history and um sometimes continues to but uh yeah i i just really liked it and the um the song up there kazali i God. was like well, i was really angry with you about the up there kazali so many times in this movie <laughs> like you were angry at me for yeah, i was angry you at you yeah <laughs> <laughs> I, re- I remember that so much from my childhood did they just it was in the vb ad wasn't it yeah, was it, is that what it was from i think so yeah 
Yeah, but it it really captures that scene so well, like that 80s sort of like footballers having like sinking a slab and then getting on the field and stuff like that, you know? That old school, yeah, before football became... Yeah, AFL professional, and yeah. it, and it's making fun of it in a really fun way. So, but it's also yeah, yeah, yeah. It, it kind of celebrates it, but it, I don't know. Yeah. It's kind of a bit of both. It's, it does have yeah. it both ways. Yeah, mm. yeah. I, I really am a fan of David Williamson's writing, and he does in a lot of I think his plays. Um, of course, the club was adapted from his play. Um, he does explore that kind of masculinity in these sort of spaces, and the club does a great job of it. Uh, this was the first time I had seen this film. Oh, really? Yeah, I'm not surprised because yeah. you're not a sports fan in any yeah, way, Yeah, I'm not a sports form. fan. And it's funny, Flick, because I have always lived in Melbourne and I remember somebody asked me once which AFL team I followed and I said I didn't really follow the AFL. And they said, oh, you're new to Melbourne then. And I was like, <laughs> no, I just don't follow it. So um, coming into this film, it was, you know, really lovely to say, see Graham Kennedy and all this sort of stuff. But it didn't really grab me until midway through, and then it really grabbed me, and I really, really enjoyed it. Um, it the particular bit that grabbed me was when uh, John Howard, not not the Pam, the actor <laughs> John Howard, was telling the story, um, the outrageous story that he's made up <laughs> yeah. about his sister and his mum and his brother, and I was like, this is like and then I was kind of really turned around the humor didn't really work for me up until that point but then yeah it's a really interesting I guess exploration of these men and there is I think there's maybe two women in the film and they're very very minimal um these men trying to be the alpha male trying to be top dog just trying to one-up each other in these different ways that we go about this and trying to hold ways, on to their legacy as yeah, well. Yeah, yeah. In yeah, ways so that desperately. <laughs> we're used to seeing all the time now with the AFL in newspapers, um, like sex scandals, all this kind of stuff. I don't know how common that was at this point when the club came out. Um, but yeah, it's just everything sort of seemed like, okay, yeah, I'm, I'm really I can identify with, you know, sort of reading this in the papers. This sort of stuff happens all the time now. Whereas it seemed like it was quite perhaps new to our sporting world here in Melbourne. Or dare I say normalised. Normalised, yes, yes, yes. And I think that yeah. one of the things Williamson mm. does here is sort of call attention to that. Because because yeah. a couple of times like, oh, I didn't realise that, you know, a certain character slapped a woman at one point because mm. I was really – because it's funny. And they, they sort of run the whole spectrum of kind of – because you've kind of got John Howard's character who is kind of a more new age kind of player. Like he's someone that's yep. – is a bit radicalized, like you know, obviously with the university girlfriend and everything. He's clearly had an education. He sees, you know, he, he sees himself as a commodity that you know yes. he's being exploited. And then you've got you know Jack Thompson, who's very much an old school kind of guy, but he's a, a basically a good man at heart. You know, he's just uh, trying to you know there is a healthy dose of ego there, but you know at heart he's a good person. And then there's kind of Graham Kennedy, who is has a good heart but is weak. And and uh, and obviously does a bad thing uh, that we won't mention. But and then there's Jock, who's terrible. And then there's you know there's uh, uh, Alan Castle's character Jerry, who's just you know kind of a capitalist. You know, uh, yeah. yeah it's, it's an interesting spectrum. It is, and it's interesting how um yeah I guess with that normalization of I guess even domestic violence in this film gets sort yes. of it, it's mm. brought up I think quite a few times mm. and. 
really brushed off in this kind of boys club thing. And yeah, David Williamson always sort of is, I guess, quite known for looking at that sort of stuff and exploring masculinity in that way throughout his plays. Mm. Mm. I was just thinking before as well when we were talking a bit about the culture of um, uh, sexual assault as well in the AFL, there's a really excellent book called Night Games by Anna Crean that I can highly recommend, which Mm kind of goes into that in more more depth. Yeah. Yeah. But uh, having said that, while it does, you know, touch on these sort of things, I think what you were saying before, Flick, I think this film has it both ways really well because I think it's also a celebration of the yeah. sport and of yeah. passion and what and of team loyalty and that this is something that we're losing in the progress to you know mm. this pr- more professional money driven game Absolutely. and I think that's personified through the Danny character through Harold Hopkins's character mm-hmm. as well who's just this guy who's just a passionate competitor and just wants to get out there and do the best for his team and do the best you know he's doing it for the jumper and mm-hmm. and for the coach and and I love that sort of stuff and and you know like I think the I think the footage of the games is really well handled. Like obviously, yeah. they, you know, they get right in there. Um, the coach, because um, a lot of the team on uh, a lot of the Collingwood team in this are actual Collingwood players. How as well was- as well as the actual coach at the time, Tom Hafey, has a small role. And I was just going to say that Hafey staged the actors' scene uh, on on ground football scenes, which is why Hayward and 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 um, and Hopkins look so convincing. Right. How was this received, like, um, or obviously, you know, that it, this film is about Collingwood mm. and there are some portrayals that are quite negative. I don't know. Like, what was the reception for this when it I've came I've always in? wondered yeah. that. I've, I haven't been able to nail that down. Yeah. Like, it did well at the box office. Like, it was a small hit. Yeah. And obviously the play said, and the play doesn't specify a club. It's purely no. the movie that said it yeah. at Collingwood. But clearly, I think... Collingwood were happy to have the promotion and yeah, of course, of course. Like, but yeah, I, I was wondering that when I was yeah. watching it. It was like, how was this received by Collingwood fans when it was first released? Um, yeah, I'd, I'd be really interested to know that. I'm very it's curious. Not the most, it's not like an outright, um, outrightly favourable. Like, no, I exactly. Know, I don't. Yeah, but also okay. you've got. Collingwood, you know, Collingwood uh, supporters are able to see the legends of the game on screen at times, even playing characters. Like yeah. Renee Kink has a couple of lines of dialogue, and you know, you got Peter Dacos, and you got Ron Wearmouth has a couple of lines of dialogue, and all these sort of um, famous Collingwood players of that time. That's true, um, and they're totally played as like the underdogs, that, and so there's that yeah. obviously, yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and it's not the players who are seen as the bad ones either. And I no, think it's not key. at all. I think it's mm. key. The the players in the film are actually kind of the good guys of the piece and it's the the backroom administrators that are kind of the bastards true but um yeah i i just think it's the best it's still the best film set in and about aussie rules i've seen made in this country and 40 years on i think it's it's still pretty tough to beat and yeah it was uh, great and the satire is great as well. I think I think when it when it works, when it when it's really humming, it's almost like an Australian Glen Gary Glen Ross at a point. Yes. <laughs> it's, yeah. It's got that quality. Yeah, so, sure. The club is now streaming on Prime Video and Canopy and available to rent or buy via YouTube and Google Play. You're listening to Primal Screen on Triple R. Welcome back. You've been listening to Primal Screen on Triple R with Sally Christie, Flick Ford, and myself, Paul Anthony Nelson. We discussed Patrick. From 1978, now streaming via Tubi. Mad Max, now streaming on Stan and Foxtel Now and available to rent on iTunes. And The Club from 1980, now streaming on Prime Video and Canopy and available to rent or buy via YouTube and Google Play. 
You can also subscribe to the Primal Screen podcast via iTunes or wherever else you find your favorite podcasts. Next week, we will be looking at some new releases. We'll be looking at Spike Lee's new joint. Uh, oh, no, I shouldn't. I should, should I reveal or should I no. wait for the socials to reveal? I reckon um, you can... <laughs> I'm like, no. We've got some contention here. There's some contention. All right. Well, well maybe the, the, surprise. the mention of Spike Lee might give you a bit of a clue. But otherwise, <laughs> uh, stay tuned to our social media channels this week. So Primal Screen Show on Facebook. at. Thanks for listening to Primal Screen, a weekly radio show airing Monday evenings on Triple R. Hope you've enjoyed the podcast version and feel free to get in touch via the Primal Screen Facebook page or the Triple R website. 